1: with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's dot com. Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold.
2: This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Good evening and welcome. This is Tell Me Everything. So good to be with you. I'm John Fugelsang. Chris Howeltt is our heroic executive producer running this thing from South Carolina. Thea Harper is running this thing from Brooklyn. I come to you from Manhattan, and I got a brand new microphone I'm trying to use for two and a half years. what was two and a half two and a half years, Chris. Two next week it'll be two and one half years. We've been doing this show from home, and that entire time I've done it wearing a, a, a headset. Like, I'm taking your fry order. Tonight, we're actually trying out a real microphone, like grown-ups. And, and if it works, they let me keep the job. So I'm very, very excited. Night of new discoveries. And it's a lot to get to today. Barack and Michelle Obama returned to the White House, welcomed by Joe Biden and the First Lady for the unveiling of their official portraits. Uh, we saw this leaked list of ultra right-wing oathkeeper members showing that hundreds of law enforcement members and politicians and military folk are in that charming collective. Uh New York Governor Kathy Hochul has officially lifted the mask mandate on public transportation. Masks are now optional like hygiene or as Chris pointed out like pants. And 77.1 years. That is the current average life expectancy at birth in China. Now For the first time, surpassing United States life expectancy, which is 76.1 years. Chinese people now officially live a year longer than us. This is new CDC data. China for decades has significantly lagged behind the U.S. in this metric. Not anymore. So there is a whole lot to get to tonight on the show. And I'm so glad y'all are with us and lots to be angry about, too. Bob Seska is going to be joining us later this evening to talk about, well, the prep scandal, which I'll get to in a minute. And I'm really pleased to welcome Madeleine Ostrander to the show tonight. She's the author of the excellent new book, At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth. It's a book that actually examines climate change from the perspective of what a home is. And rather than using abstracts like the Arctic ice shelf or, I don't know, the environment or air and water, Ms. Ostrander's book goes after our home, and your home is in danger. And it's a really, really fascinating, brilliant, and meticulously researched book that's going to turn you on. So I'm really glad you're here. Let's get to it. The Affordable Care Act. Oh, I did. I I, I forgot to bury the lead. The big show this Saturday night. You got to come down in Washington, D.C. Stephanie Miller's Sexy Liberal Comedy Tour is now on the Save Democracy Tour. We're only doing a few dates, one in the East Coast. One in the Midwest, in Chicago, in a couple weeks. But this weekend, at Sydney Harmon Hall in our nation's capital. If you're on the East Coast, come on down. It's going to be a big party. Stephanie Miller, Hal Sparks, myself, some very special guests. The brilliant Glenn Kirshner, who I think is funny. He's, I mean, I, I'm sure he's hilarious on stage. I can't wait to follow him. And, of course, you guys. It's going to be a riot. Come on down this weekend. I can't wait to see you. It is the official beginning of midterm season. Now, let's get to it. The Affordable Care Act, it it seems to be in good shape, right? I mean, you know, politically, it's pretty solid. They haven't succeeded in repealing it. John McCain saved it. He really saved the Republican Party because they didn't have an adequate replacement. But those true believers, those hopeless romantics, they're still finding any way they can to chip away at this law, to chip away at the benefits of what is called Obamacare. Now, you might remember back a couple months ago, way back in the old times, July Right-wing lawyer Jonathan Mitchell launched this case trying to seek a religious exemption to the requirement of employer insurance covering PrEP, the medication that prevents HIV infection, because Attorney Mitchell thought it condoned homosexuality. Giving people who have HIV, life-saving HIV drugs, condones homosexuality. Yes, folks, we're still having this fight with these stupid, mean, fake Christians. So a whole bunch of Texas residents and employers, backed by a lot of Trump administration officials, filed suit against the Affordable Care Act's preventive care mandates. And they argued, hey, making people pay for insurance plans that cover things like STD screenings or HIV prevention drugs, that will, let me quote, because they really put this in print, that will facilitate and encourage Homosexual behavior, prostitution, sexual promiscuity, and intravenous drug use. I'm going to say that again. These right-wing crackpots in Texas who hate everything the Christian faith is supposed to stand for said that if you actually make people pay for insurance plans that cover HIV prevention drugs, Well, you're going to be encouraging prostitution and HIV drug. Oh, my God. It's it's just the stupid is only outmatched by the evil. So uh, PrEP is more than 90% effective in preventing the transmission of HIV. It is recommended for adults who are at a high risk of getting HIV. That's a group that includes men who have sex with other men. But as you guys know, because you wouldn't be listening to this channel if you were right-wing imbeciles, you can get HIV even if you're not a man who has sex with other men. Look, here's the ad for Truvada. You've probably heard the ad. Give a listen. This is the product we're talking about. Chris, do we have that audio? Oh,
3: I'm on the pill. I'm on the pill too. But it's not birth control.
2: It's Truvada
1: for PrEP, a once-daily prescription medicine for adults that when taken every day along with using safer sex practices can help lower my chances of getting HIV through sex. I
2: use condoms, but I talk to my doctor about doing more. He said that because I had a higher chance of getting
3: HIV through sex, Truvada for PrEP could be an option for me.
1: She also told me that Truvada
4: alone may not keep me from getting HIV, and it does not prevent other STIs or
2: pregnancy.
3: You must be HIV negative to take Truvada for PrEP. So you need to get tested for
1: HIV immediately before and at least every three months while taking Truvada. I wanted to know about all of my prevention options. So I asked my doctor about your body. You get the idea.
2: These are the people right wing Christians have decided need to die. And I don't choose my words lightly. The plaintiffs in this case are six individuals and two Christian owned businesses, Braidwood Management and Kelly Orthodontics. And they were in court arguing they should not be mandated to ever offer coverage of HIV PrEP because they don't want to encourage homosexual behavior. See, under the ACA, most health insurance plans have to cover certain recommended preventative services, including HIV testing for people aged 15 to 65 and HIV prep for adults who are at a higher risk of getting HIV because it's expensive for America for people to have HIV. So we are trying to keep uh, our fellow Americans safer and keep medical costs lower. So Braidwood, with the other plaintiffs, filed this lawsuit to challenge coverage of Truvada, the drug we just heard the ads for. If you watch MSNBC at all, you probably hear these ads a lot. Today, a Texas judge granted them their exemption. Essentially, the argument was providing somebody with life-saving medicine violates my Christian rights. A federal judge in Texas ruled that the ACA mandate for free coverage of groundbreaking HIV prevention drugs made by Gilead Sciences substantially burdens the religious freedom of a Christian-owned company. If you're a Christian-owned company and one of your employees has HIV, letting them get HIV drugs violates your Christian rights. (laughs) Folks, there's a word we have to use for the Republicans behind this, and it's called death panel. OK, Let, let's start with the obvious. A, a company cannot have religious rights, right? Corporations, I, I, they got political rights. Now they can have religions. Do businesses need to register as a certain religion? Do they have to disclose this in the interview process? What faith are business? Do, do Does your business go to worship in a church or a synagogue or a mosque? Or do you just find out after you're hired? Is that how it works? You just get hired by a company and then get turned down for certain kinds of medical care? Facilitating homosexual behavior by what? By, by not allowing them to die. That's the logic. Uh, folks, uh, listen, I understand. You're a Republican. You haven't actually read the Bible. Uh, love your neighbor doesn't come with an asterisk. No caveats there. You're stuck, motherfucker. You have to love your neighbor. But this is Republican Sharia law. It always pretends to be Christian. I call it Scalia law. This is a radical GOP-appointed federal judge ruling that employers can deny coverage for a drug proven to save lives from HIV AIDS. This would be U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor in Fort Worth, who granted summary judgment to Braidwood Management in their challenge to coverage of Truvada and Discovery. Uh These are two pre-exposure prophylactic drugs, right? They're taken daily by hundreds of thousands of people, particularly including men who have sex with men. Now, Companies can deny coverage for these drugs that prevent HIV because this Christian company complained that taking care of the sick makes them complicit in facilitating homosexual behavior because they're certainly not complicit in Christian behavior. PrEP is essential to combating the transmission of HIV. That means it's essential to keeping the American public healthy. This ruling in Texas is an example of just everyone gets to be the law themselves in the name of religion. But it's all about subordinating gay men and trans women. The law is often used in legal cases challenging abortion and contraception access, as well as health care for transgender people, the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so Judge O'Connor said PrEP specifically violates religious rights by requiring them to provide insurance that covers PrEP as well as HPV vaccine. The HPV vaccine so you don't get cancer by requiring them to provide insurance that covers PrEP and the HPV vaccine and sex education. The government would make them complicit in those behaviors. How about they don't get to care about those behaviors anymore than, I don't know, a gay employer would get to care about straight behaviors? Because, you know, those straight people, they actually pass around HIV. Straight people have sex and they gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, HPV. Straight people are filthy. What if a gay employer decides he doesn't want to provide coverage? Now, again, the, the suit's being led by John Mitchell, who is the uh, former Solicitor General of Texas. And he's a real piece of work. He's tried everything he can do to make it harder to get abortions in the state. And again, you, you don't have to be gay to catch HIV. You don't have to be gay to die from AIDS. See, again, I, I, I want to talk about the evil, but I'm stuck on talking about the stupid. What, what about a married heterosexual couple? where the woman is HIV positive. Can she get No, pro- Nope, she can't either, huh? HIV has no sexual orientation. I'm going to say that again because I thought we settled this in the 80s. HIV has no sexual orientation. Judge O'Connor was an appointee of President George W. Bush. And he said the government failed to demonstrate a state interest in providing coverage of the drugs that overcame the plaintiff's religious objections. Again, they're claiming to be Christian and they don't. Want to help sick people. This judge always rules against any Democratic administration, Democratic policies. I mean, a lot of conservative plaintiffs seek this guy out to judge their cases. He's ruled against the ACA many times. He's got a big history of anti gay rulings, both the LGBT marriage, uh, Title IX sex discrimination ban. The week before Christmas of 2018, this judge agreed to strike down all of the Affordable Care Act. All of it. Even conservatives said this was nuts. New York Times noted soon after Republicans had a habit of bringing their cases to this specific district court because of their confidence that this right wing hack would give them everything they wanted back in 2015. This is when he barred the Department of Labor from immediately enforcing the new rule granting family and medical leave benefits to same sex couples. Yeah, he didn't want to do that. He had to give up this judge after the Obergefell ruling, which made it legal for gay people to marry in all 50 states. Now, now again, I, this is Texas we're talking about, OK, outside of the the big cities in texas we're talking about the red counties we're talking about the ones who let's be polite here take more federal funds than they generate these are the people deep red texas that have the highest number and the highest percentage of uninsured residents in the nation this is why hospitals in rural texas counties can't keep their doors open it's what you voted for texas republicans because you got suckered by these people this judge Said there was no evidence the government couldn't assume the cost of providing PrEP drugs to people who are unable to obtain them from religious employers. Hmm. PrEP drugs can cost as much as $20,000 a year, according to the ruling. And this judge essentially said, oh, U.S. Government, why don't you buy this drug for people who may have HIV? Now, that's interesting. I almost agree with it. But I'll get to that in a second. You got to think about the fact that there are so many worries here, not just affordable access to HIV drugs. I mean, HCA coverage of a whole bunch of other preventive benefits. I mean, what about vaccines? What about flu shots? What about cancer screenings? What if a religious organization decided that they didn't want to cover that for their employees? I mean, Politico reported that the Urban Institute found a far-right ruling in this case could threaten coverage of preventative services for nearly 168 million Americans. This is all about right-wing people who want to have a broad interpretation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a 1993 law that's been used countless times to challenge access to abortion, challenge access to contraception, to block any kind of dignity for the LGBTQ community. This is all about imposing extreme religious beliefs. It's not about protecting religious freedom. And that's the most important thing. This is not about anyone's religious freedom. (laughs) it's about imposing your beliefs on someone else, even if, and here's where I get hung up on it, even if the belief has nothing to do with the holy book you pretend you fucking read, because you cannot hate gay people and call yourself a follower of Jesus. You cannot delight in the suffering of HIV patients and call yourself a fucking patriot or a Christian. What religion wants people to die from AIDS? What is the religion that finds it acceptable For their employees to die from AIDS. This ruling will be appealed to the Sixth Circuit. That's, of course, dominated by Republican jurists. But I'm sure a sane Republican would strike this down. A spokesperson for Health and Human Services said "Um, the department continues to work to ensure that people can access health care free from discrimination. So they said nothing. I'm wondering, what if why don't these employers ban dick pills? Right. I mean, we're going to use behavior as a standard they should start banning ed medication homosexuals use that sometimes don't they also contraception right that's got to be on the naughty list go ahead what but what about like we got to ban what high blood pressure meds insulin for type 2 diabetes how about banning lipitor i mean that's a lifestyle choice right addiction obesity fertility treatment i mean come on let's go all the way on this let's add all medical treatment due to lifestyle choices don't just beat up on the gay people sick gay people come on be a true trump christian and hate all kinds of americans i mean they could deny lung cancer treatment because smoking is against the religion right i I, what if you think that your religion is against alcohol can you deny hep c drugs pregnancy treatment for unwed mothers i mean come on hobby lobby paved the way these christians are not christians they are horrible human beings who call themselves christian to give themselves the air of virtue they don't have it and they're trying to deny life-saving pre treatments for hiv patients which affects a lot more than just gay people i mean yes it's hateful but by god the ignorance and this is why employers should have zero control over your health care right i mean let's agree let's get our right-wing friends in on this shouldn't medical decisions all be in the hands of doctors and patients why should a corporation have any say in fact why should a corporation have to include your health care as part of a compensation package? What kind of World War II FDR relic is this? This is why employer-provided health insurance should go. Medicare for all people. This whole ugly story. And I didn't hear any journalists talking about it. But this is why we need to have the same access to health care that all of our capitalist allies enjoy. Find me, another capitalist society. Any country on Earth where where. They're literally having these sorts of debates where people can be denied life-saving drugs because the person they work for has a religious hang-up. It's ridiculous. Medicare for all. And then the whole argument about, oh, my religious beliefs are being violated. It's gone. That's why we need single-payer health care. Think of all these fake Christians that are going to lose their minds if we have single-payer health care. Think about all these prayer-against-care types, knowing the people they hate are going to get the care they need no matter how much they hate. (laughs) I mean, they're angry that they're required to treat HIV by not providing prep. Their employees may contract HIV and then who pays they do. They're so freaking stupid. They'd rather pay. They'd rather pay for an employee who has AIDS and pay those medical bills than pay for the prep to prevent getting there, by the way. Here's my big question about these right wing Christians. Let's say we go all the way. hmm? I wonder how they would feel if hospitals had decided to withhold treatment for COVID complications for unvaccinated patients. I mean, that's a lifestyle choice. And if you're not going to look out for yourself, that goes against my religion.
1: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
4: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
1: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
2: Welcome back. So good to be with you. A quick reminder. The next live show is going to be this Saturday in Washington, D.C. at the Harmon Center for the Performing Arts. And next week, Ken Burns returns to the show this time live. And in I think the last two times Ken Burns has done our show, Chris, we've had him on Zoom. We're really happy to have a live town hall. His new film is going to be one you'll be hearing about quite a lot. It's all about America and the Holocaust, and our country's role in the Holocaust. It's going to be a very eye-opening and controversial film. Uh, Don't miss Ken stopping by our studio for a full hour with an audience, which we'll be putting on tape next week. I've been so looking forward to welcoming Madeline Ostrander to the show. She's a contributing editor to Yes magazine. She works out of Seattle and she writes about science from climate change and environmental justice to food, health and neuroscience. You've read her stuff in the New Yorker and the Nation uh, Slate. But her new book is, well, it's not like any book I've read about the climate crisis. It's called At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth. And it doesn't tackle the crisis as a political problem or a scientific problem, but as a real tangible force that's affecting all of us at home. It's a book that highlights how communities on the front lines are dealing with floods and fire and other disasters and how they're finding resilience because they're fighting for their homes. It's a book that stops framing it as the environment or the Arctic ice shelf and talks about what home really means to us homo sapiens in the time of climate science she offers vivid accounts of people fighting to protect the places they love from increasingly scary circumstances and it is truly a book that shows the political and the personal are often completely intertwined it's a great pleasure to welcome madeline ostrander to the show hello
0: thank you so much john
2: thank you really an honor i love your book it was not what i expected and it takes a, a, a an approach towards this whole crisis that is uh, so starkly original and if i may even kind of hopeful and even warm. I'm curious, when you started reporting on this book, I was curious, what, what did the concept of home mean to you originally?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I sometimes wonder if I gravitated toward this book because I have, in fact, moved around a lot in my life, and I, but I've always envied people who had a strong sense of rootedness. Um, but then I've lived in Seattle now for about 15 years, and I think that I have developed a strong sense of connectedness to this place, to the Pacific Northwest, and it's just a really beautiful part of the country. So, um, it, you know, I think that's a lot of what drew me to this book, my perhaps my own quest for a sense of home as well.
2: I find it very really moving how you conceived of this book and, and built the whole book about um, what our planet faces around the sense of home. And, and I'm curious, what was the creative process? Because I'm I'm kind of a structure whore, and I really love how you <laughs> framed the entire book. It's really, really smart.
0: Thank you so much. Um, it came from a couple of different places, and one of them is just... Having the experience of reporting on climate change for many years. And I think of most of the people that I know who you know have worked on this issue for a long time, have felt this very intense sense of frustration that that, you know like kind of like you can see, the crisis coming you can see you know the the train coming towards someone who's standing on the track or something yeah. i don't know if that's quite the right analogy but but you 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 know you can see something that's happening that's very dire and yet other people don't see it in the same way that you do um i think that i knew you know fairly long ago years ago i understood that um the climate crisis was something that would affect Every fundamental aspect of life, I, you know, it's been spending a lot of time with science, and I would find myself driving around Seattle or riding the bus or whatever, and and wondering, what will this place look like in the next, you know, thirty years? Or something? What will happen as the water starts to rise around the city? What will happen as things start to get warmer and drier? But I didn't feel that a lot of other people were in that same place and mindset. And I felt like it was a really important missing piece of the way that we talked about climate change, about what does it mean for us personally. And then um, while I was working for Yes Magazine, I went to the Bay Area of California and I was doing a lot of reporting with environmental justice communities who were looking at the examples of disasters such as Hurricane Katrina and how profoundly it had affected vulnerable communities. And they were thinking much more tangibly, even like 10 years ago, about how will this crisis affect us specifically in our neighborhoods, in the places that we live? And how do we build our own resilience? And how do we learn skills that allow us to do that? And that was such an important, refreshing conversation to me, and in a lot of ways, also kind of hopeful because it, because I met a lot of really powerful people who were doing very tangible, important things to try to answer this crisis. So those were both connected to the genesis of this book.
2: It's interesting. I, I find it fascinating for you as a journalist, because to so many people I talk to, climate change is such an abstract concept until it directly affects you. It's sort of like gun violence. I mean, you know, until it directly affects you, it's something that exists out there or on the news. We can talk to people about fluctuating temperatures. We can talk to people about migrant crises and what's going to happen with where we all move. But generally it is still, I think for a lot of Americans, one of those things that is a big issue that's way beyond something most people think they can act on.
0: I think there's two things there. One is that a lot of people aren't connecting the dots between what's happening right around them and the climate crisis. So, a majority of Americans went through some sort of unusual or very extreme level of heat this summer. But I've noticed um, as I've talked to people, you know, not just through interviews, but random conversations with, say, someone who's cutting my hair or something about, you know, the heat waves or the for instance in seattle the wildfire smoke that we've been getting over the last several years that's become worse and worse because of fires around the region blowing smoke into the city they have this little aha moment where you know i see this look of realization pass across their face where where suddenly they they hadn't made the connection between those things necessarily and, and climate change and i think that's an important story and conversation that we need to have with everybody people need to be talking much more about what's happening in their homes in their communities and the places that are familiar to them and how that's part of that global crisis but then you know the other the other part of the equation is that people need to have a sense that they have some sort of power over this situation that it's not just a global um huge vast global problem that they have no Um, influence over and so the stories i try to tell are of people coming up with solutions in their community Um, for instance in richmond california i tell this story of a group of urban farmers who through very simple acts in the beginning of just trying to plant gardens all around the city and and grow food and think about how to rearrange the local food system begin a whole larger conversation about what does it mean for this community that's built around a century-old oil refinery what does it mean to try to move beyond an oil economy which is a conversation that the whole country has to have but we can have it on all kinds of scales we're all you know surrounded by different kinds of of systems and and infrastructure and and decisions that are made locally that we can have an influence on as well
2: Well, I mean, you, you nail it in the book, in the introduction, I want to quote you to you, which sounds weird, but you say in simple (laughs) terms, coal, oil, gas, energy sources formed on from ancient fossil carbon fuel the global economy and power most of our homes. As we have burned that carbon, we have altered the physics and the chemistry of the earth's atmosphere on a grand scale. We've known about this problem for more than three decades. And scientists first began drawing international public attention to the subject of climate change, but we have failed to reorganize ourselves in order to take care of it. And that's why I, I love the fact that you break away from this abstract concept of an ecosystem and talk about a home. Because this, to me, brings in the science and the economics and the spirituality. Having a home is about how you take care of it. And Mm -hmm. um, I I think it's brilliant to bring it all to such a personal level. I'd like to ask you a bit about the whole idea of community and interconnectedness as an important facet in how we fight climate change and how we adapt as well. I mean, you grapple quite a lot with interconnectedness in the book and I could tell it was very important to you that we drive that point home.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we just talked a moment ago about how so much of the conversation about climate change has focused on, you know, this big abstract global idea. I think you know, the other extreme is that people have talked about it on a very micro individual level. So are you eating hamburgers or tofu or, or are you driving a car or a bicycle? And I don't want to say that those conversations on either scale are, are not important in certain contexts. But I think that we have a lot of power in the in the communities that we're part of. And we're all part of many overlapping kinds of communities also our connectedness to community has a lot to do with our resilience our ability to deal with these kinds of crises right um for instance one of the other communities i write about is a community called Bateros, washington which is um, part of Okanogan county in central washington and they went through a catastrophic wildfire um and the process of recovery and you know they were able to really have come up with a successful process for rebuilding a community and, and recovering from wildfire and then thinking again about what do we do when wildfire comes again to this area and how do we plan for it? How do we be ready? But that was a community level process, and they were very successful in in coming up with that process and and dealing with that and raising money and rebuilding people's houses and rebuilding people's lives and the reason they were able to do that was because they had a really strong sense of community and there was a huge amount of interconnectedness and so people were able to come together and help each other and i think that's a piece of the climate crisis that we don't talk about nearly enough you know it's not just about building some bunker somewhere where you're (laughs) protected from storms or something you know that that alone probably isn't going to keep someone safe or happy or healthy in the long term what you know, there's huge amount of evidence from social science and from disaster recovery that what really helps people is being connected yeah. to one another and having a sense of community.
2: You have a brilliant metaphor for that in a chapter in the in the middle of the book where um you, you visited St. Augustine. And my parents lived there for years in the area. And I used to go there and be shocked at how you know the the former economy of of slave importing and slave breeding is still very much present in the city but in this very unlikely place you you found a, a a pretty powerful metaphor for this and about you know who we are and and what our house is if you know the story i'm meaning
0: there's a few different stories from saint augustine um this, there's, there's, there's there's one ahead, that please. i'm Oh, I, I didn't hear you for a second.
2: Oh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead, please. I was talking about the the slide of the of the house, but but I love the whole. I thought maybe
0: you were Augustine. you were mentioning that. Yeah. So, um, I, I went to a conference in St. Augustine. Um, it was a really interesting conference called "Keeping History Above Water," which is all about how to protect the country's most historic places from the threats related to sea level rise, which is happening all around, of course, the coasts. And um, it wasn't. So the conference was in St Augustine and there was someone who held up a slide in the middle of this conference that showed a house that had been built specifically to be able to survive a hurricane. And there was the house completely robust and intact, but all around it was everything was completely ravaged, just wreckage and and, you know, crushed buildings and and broken rubble. And there was a little bit of an uncomfortable laugh that went through the conference because everyone in the room realized that that wasn't really a home anymore. You can't happily and comfortably live in a house that's in the middle of wreckage. So yeah. this idea that we can individually survive something is is really, a, I think, a misconception that has a lot to do with sort of hyper individualism of this culture, I think. And I think it's yeah. something we need to... Rethink as we're handling these big crises
2: I also want to ask you about how we view history uh, in the book because again You you forced me to examine this crisis from so many different points of view You talk about this feeling of uh, this word. I'd never heard before Solastalgia Can you explain that word for our listeners and how that concept uh, Affected how you wrote the book
0: Yeah, so one of the other important things for me to get across in the book um, in addition to talking about climate change on a scale that was relatable I wanted to talk about climate change in terms of the emotional terrain that it brings up because the climate crisis came out of you know was first told to us by scientists I think that we got used to talking about it in terms of data and numbers and projections and policies and sort of wonky stuff. And I mean, yeah. I'm a science writer. I, I love wonky stuff, but <laughs> but um, I also think that emotions are really the things that drive a lot of cultural change. Um, when you look at the powerful social movements throughout American history, they're generally driven by shared moral outrage or shared grief or a shared yes. sense that, you know, something something important is being damaged and and people feel strong feelings about that. We haven't talked enough about the emotions of climate change. And there's a scholar in Australia who's coined this idea called solastalgia, which is about the loss that we feel when the places that we call home start to change in ways that make them harder to recognize um, and make them more damaged. And so, for instance, in my own home in, in the Pacific Northwest, we used to have these beautiful, clear maritime summers that you know were very mild. And now more and more we're getting these incredible heat waves and yeah. seasons of smoke. And it's hard not just because that sort of weather pattern is hard. It's hard because there's a sense of loss. And, you know, in other places it might be felt even more powerfully, like in St. Augustine, there's all these really meaningful historic sites that are in danger because of sea level rise. And as we start to lose those, we, we start to have a sense of grief. And I think it's important yeah. to talk about that because emotions are, I think the the origin of a lot of action.
2: Yeah. And and it all comes back to the theme of caring for our home. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you write beautifully about history in, in terms of, climate change. I'm going to quote you again. Um, I love this. You say, to have an ahistorical world, and I'm the child of a history teacher, so this really (laughs) rung to me. (laughs) To have an ahistorical world, to forget the past, can be dangerous. But paradoxically, it can make society less able to perceive and respond to change. The modern American relationship with history is inconsistent and fractured. I agree. but, But how does that inform your coverage of climate change and even our understanding of it?
0: Well, there's a couple things. One is that if we aren't aware of the past and sort of long-term trends, because climate change is really all about long-term trends, right? Um, yeah. If you're just looking at the weather, <laughs> it's changing from one moment to the next. You're not. You're not going to see the trend. Um, I think also I was drawing a little bit on uh, the ideas of some researchers that I talked to who um, work in indigenous communities, and and of course I. I write about an indigenous community in Alaska in part of the book. Um, Other cultures, you know, besides our American, Western, European oriented culture, have a have often a long sense of time and Mm -hmm. a sense that things recur. And I think that having that long sense of time is also part of having a sense that, you know, we need to keep renewing and rebuilding The world for the generations that come after us and we need to preserve the things that have come before us i think that that's that sense of ethics is really important for climate change we need to be thinking on long time horizons because climate change is happening it's happening immediately of course but it's also happening on long time horizons what we do now reverberates out for decades so i think a sense of history is 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 really important for all of that Well, and again, I
2: I really appreciated how much time you spent, you know, reporting this book in indigenous communities. And we mentioned the Colville Reservation in central Washington as well. Uh, Obviously, First Nations communities are way more vulnerable to climate change uh, and the impacts of it. But as you point out, these are the same communities that have an historic understanding of ways for humans to live more in balance with the environment. And I'm curious, you know, what insights you got from your time with uh, First Nations population in terms of what can the rest of us learn about how to live with nature?
0: I think one of the big lessons of the book really was this idea that that ecosystem, again, to use a sort of abstract word, but here I'm meaning by ecosystem I'm meaning the sort of natural surroundings that we live with, you know, the, the landscapes, the the other species that we share a place with. Um, indigenous communities have a very clear idea of reciprocity, that that part of having a home in a place is taking care of those um, those parts of the environment, taking care of those other species that share a space with us um, taking care of the land. And um, One powerful example of that is in communities that are prone to fire. Across the West, communities have always been prone to wildfire. I think that's something that people sometimes miss in the coverage of of the current crisis of wildfire across the West. In indigenous communities, there was an understanding that fire was a necessary part of the ecosystem that people lived in. And so those communities would actually deliberately set fires in certain places in order to try to encourage you know certain kinds of plants to grow to encourage um certain kinds of tree species to thrive to um create wildlife habitat and it was a way of again having this sort of reciprocity of sort of being part of the dynamics of the ecosystem around them it was considered part of kind of cleaning the landscape or yeah. you know, renewing it and i think I think that that's something that we, you know, in our more contemporary conception of home as like just real estate, we've <laughs> lost, you know, we've lost that idea that your your home is connected to this larger landscape, this larger place, and that we all have to be part of taking care of that. Correct. And that's really important also, you know, for managing the climate crisis. If we're going to build resilience against some of these impacts like wildfire or, you know, the coasts, we're going to build some resilience against certain kinds of floods, restoring ecosystems and and protecting them is really important. Um, Like at coasts as well, like places like salt marshes are really important for helping buffer against floods. So we need to take in that lesson that we have to value. Those ecosystems around us, as part of our sense of home, if rather than we're our property, be okay I mean, and cope yeah. with these crises. It is,
2: it is a very uh, it is a very colonial American versus First Nations way of thinking. Uh, we must rule the earth, have dominion over the earth, master the earth, own the earth, rather than care for it. It just seems like culturally, uh, generations have grown up with the exact wrong idea of how we're supposed to regard this gift of this place we've been given to live.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I never want to draw too strict a, a binary, but uh, but I think that there are lessons from indigenous communities that we have not, not, you know, that we've often, de- historically, we've deliberately neglected. We've deliberately pushed aside indigenous wisdom about and tradition about how to manage North American landscapes. And that's a, a large part of why we're in the predicament that we're in now. Um, especially in terms of things like wildfire. If we had managed forests differently and grasslands, we would be having a different situation now I agree. in terms of wildfire.
2: I agree. How significant do you think it is that uh, Joe Biden made Deb Holland the Secretary of the Interior?
0: Well, I think it's very significant. I mean, that, that's it's hugely important that we start having these um, perspectives represented in, in the federal level. I, I think that... It, you know, there these are perspectives that have been missing in leadership and, um, yeah, I, I, I think that that was a, a hugely important step in terms of both climate change and for tribal communities across the country
2: um I I honestly I I love this book it's so filled with emotion and so filled with reason at the same time but I I do want to ask before uh I thank you for your time I I want to ask how your father's doing I know from reading your social media that your father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and that it must be very strange for you to be publishing this book after all this work during such a, a scary time how is your dad how is your family doing
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, It has been a really difficult time. Um, My dad has really been struggling with his treatment and it it has been um, hard having the book come out at the same time that that very personal, um, difficult challenge has been happening. He's very excited about the book. He's really proud of me, I I have to say. Um, It's also given me um, a lot of thoughts about what hope looks like what resilience looks like on a personal level and i i I mean i maybe it sounds funny to relate something as personal as my own father's cancer struggle to this book that i just wrote which is happening on such a no i think it's very fair and appropriate
2: actually i think it's very fair and appropriate but go on
0: yeah um i think that i've known i've known now two people who um are have struggled with pancreatic cancer over the last three years, both very close to me, one being my father and another, um, a friend who actually just passed away a few days ago. I'm so sorry. One thing I have noticed from watching their struggles is that hope isn't necessarily just about sort of outcomes or some guarantee. That that, um, optimism really comes from tackling what's in front of you and keeping in mind what's really important to you the things that you love and the things that you care about and i think something similar applies to when we're thinking about the climate crisis i think that in a lot of ways the most powerful actions on the climate crisis come not out of a sense of like do we know what the odds are or do we yes. know what the outcome will be? But what do we really love and what are we willing to fight for? And how much, you know, if we still have fight left, then then we ought to be doing as much as we can do, uh, everyone, to, to try to figure out how we cope with this crisis, how we transform our society and the places that we live in and the communities that we care about. And that's the work, you know, it's, it's not about finding some magical guarantee that, that, yeah. you know, we know we're going what the end point of this crisis is going to look like. Um, and I think that's much more empowering in a lot of ways.
2: I agree. I agree. The book is incredibly smart and hopeful and uh, filled with emotion and reason. As I said, it is at home On an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth. Madeline Ostrander, what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work?
0: You can go to my website, which is just madelineostrander.com.
2: Such a pleasure having you with us. Thank you so, so much for this book and hope to see you again. Take care.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, John.
2: Thank you. We've got to take a quick break now. I know you all have been waiting on hold for a long time. So when we return, it's going to be your calls all the way till midnight on the East Coast, 9 p.m. on the Pacific. We're at 866-997-GRIT. I will be taking all your calls and thanking you profusely for your patience on hold. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
1: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
2: And welcome back. I'm always thrilled to have Bob Seska on the show. Uh, He's just one of the smartest guys, one of the most empathetic guys, one of the most aware guys. I would call him woke uh i I think i would call him woke if that wasn't an epithet now being kind is a bad thing if you're a right-wing christian uh but most of all i want to have bob on because i i just i i need to apologize to him i i was the guy who told him to invest everything in Truth Social. It just seemed like, hey, it seems such a natural. I mean, we can hate them, but it'll run for years, right? It's just going to run on hate. I mean, Donald Trump couldn't launch this thing just to screw over his followers in the short term. Uh, Bob is the host of the Bob Saska Show, one of the best podcasts about politics. And maybe you're a fan of his appearances on the Stephanie Miller Show, his great columns. We are always thrilled to have him. And again, Bob, I'm so sorry. Devin Nunez promised me it would, it would be a great yield. Welcome back. <laughs>
4: Yeah. What a surprise that a Trump thing failed catastrophically or is in the process of failing. I think I actually enjoy watching it fail. I enjoy the journey, John, not necessarily the destination.
2: It is the it is the it is the Trump stakes of of, uh, social media.
4: (laughs) Exactly right. And it didn't help that in one of his rallies, he couldn't even say what it's called. I think yeah. he called it "TROTH Central." Is what he called troth-central. it. TROTH Central. Yeah, troth-central. that's a big. That's a big yeah. warning sign when the self-proclaimed king of marketing can't name his own I mean, social Bob, media. It's
2: fairness to the man. It's 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 two. It's a two-word title, and one of the words has two syllables. So please, come on. Let's just. Let's get <laughs> that's be, right. It is I Didn't know it was going to be the what? freaking SATs here. I
4: don't know what to call it anymore because I've heard "Truth Central" so many times. When I go to actually say the real name of the app, I can't. It's Truth something. It's Truth Central, or I, I don't know Truth. It's Truth Social, isn't it? Isn't that the I real call it name Truth? It? I, don't know.
2: I call it Truth Serum because it's where racists go to reveal <laughs> their true selves. So I, I call it Truth yeah. Serum the filter just drops away and they can hate freely but my whole thing is like wait you you how could they ever have thought it would work i mean the Mm -hmm. whole point of being a right-wing troll is hating other people so why would you go to a site where it's just other people like you and no one (laughs) to hate what's the appeal
4: Well, I will say, if I were to ever sign up, and I will never ever sign up, but if I decided to, if I was feeling saucy one afternoon and I said, you know what, I'm going to go over there to Troth Central and see what's going on, you know who I would zero in on? Our friend Hal Sparks, who is routinely over there trolling Donald Trump and getting all of his troths deleted by the admins there because he's mean to Donald Trump on Troth Central. (laughs) And so just the opportunity to see that happening in real time, I think, would be fun, but not fun enough to uh, facilitate or to uh, pay for all of the anxiety that that would create.
2: Well put. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun, but, you know, I've, I've got yeah. a TikTok account to ignore. I don't I don't know if I can find the time to, to get over there. <laughs> That's right, uh, Bob, I, I began the show talking about um, this judge in Texas mm-hmm. who ruled that the ACA's mandate for free coverage of HIV prevention drugs substantially burdens the religious freedom of a Christian-owned company. Um, Look, I'm glad death panels are back. It's very nostalgic for me. Uh, But I wanted to get your take on it because I'm trying to figure out if it's more evil or more stupid. I mean, yeah. it's revoltingly unchristian. There's no way uh, anyone who's ever read the Bible can can even argue this. You're, you're literally saying, if I have to take care of sick people, it violates my Christian beliefs. So we, we got mm-hmm. that level of lunacy on it. But also, if you're a corporation... No matter how much you hate people, no matter how much you pretend to follow Jesus who tells you not to hate people, Bob, isn't it better for the business's bottom line if you're paying to prevent your employees from getting AIDS rather than paying for your employees' AIDS treatments? I mean, I don't know where the stupid begins and ends in this case.
4: Yeah, it's it's almost as if they want their employees, as you said, they want their employees to get uh, HIV or to end up with their HIV becoming worse or transmitting it to other people, etc. That seems to be the thrust behind all of this. But I mean, with Reed O'Connor, this is a judge who has had it out for the Affordable Care Act from the very yep. beginning. We, we know yep. already that he uh, handed down this decision on uh, on the individual mandate from the Affordable Care Act, saying that if you zero out the individual mandate, well, then you have to strike, strike down the entire law, which was utter nonsense. nonsense. The individual mandate was just one small part of a gigantic piece of legislation that had so many different facets to it. Each one, to some extent, kind of working independent of the others, although the individual mandate did. Uh, kind of pay for some of the subsidies. That was the purpose of it. And also, it helped the health insurance companies to get on board and to support the Affordable Care Act, because if everyone was required to get insurance, then therefore, the health insurance companies would be, well, okay, great, more customers. That's good news for us. So we'll back this thing and fully support it and participate in the uh, insurance exchanges. And we've seen pretty good success, even in places like Kentucky, where Kentucky had a really great in, uh, uh, exchange going on. And so uh, this was Reed O'Connor's decision. It was it eventually made it all the way to the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court upheld uh, barely uh, the Affordable Care Act. And so uh, that's that thing seems to endure. But, and then you fast forward to this decision, Where once again, we're faced with an interpretation of religious freedom that essentially says that however the hell you may choose to interpret the Bible, that can become the basis for doing or not doing certain things in society. And in most cases that we've seen, certainly in recent history, the the justification always ends up in something that is horrible to other people, whether it's, you know, just no no one's, first of all, no one's asking uh, the uh, businesses that are objecting to this uh, part of the mandate, part of the uh, providing this HIV med. Right. uh, No one there is, is uh, what am I trying to say here? No one in that business is uh, being forced to go have anal sex with another man no one by the way which by the way which by the way the
2: the 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 new testament is not against the 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 one part of the bible that says no men with men is not a part christians follow so again i'm just i'm just saying they don't they they don't even have the religion argument in their religious Mm -hmm. argument i mean essentially the argument is we're going to punish you for not having the same bullshit fake christian beliefs as the guy who filed this case
4: Right. And I'm just I'm trying to figure out where the line is drawn in this in this religious freedom argument that justifies all of these awful things. We're not talking about, by the way, when we're talking about religious freedom, we're not talking about the free exercise thereof. We're not talking about necessarily how it's enumerated in that clause in the First Amendment. However, what we're talking about here is saying, no, you can't have a life-saving drug. No, and you can't have health insurance or you right. can't uh, engage in a same-sex marriage and on down the list. That is a different thing entirely. And it's being justified through religious faith, which you could really end up using for ju- to justify just about any bit of awfulness. Certainly, yeah. religion was used to justify slavery back sure. before – uh, the 13th Amendment. And so that is part of our history, that this is a great example of how r- religious faith is bastardized and exploited, which as far as I'm concerned, John, and you would probably be a, a better scholar about this than I would, is that is in and of itself sacrilegious. To, to take something that is supposed to be good, something that is supposed to bring us together, something that is supposed to make us better people, (laughs) allegedly bastardizing that to do something awful to other people. Isn't that the definition of sacrilege?
2: It's got to be. It's blasphemy. Blasphemy. I mean, pretending that Jesus hates the same gay people you hate is blasphemy. And Mm -hmm. again, if you if you're going to claim to follow the part of the Bible that says uh, men with men is a sin, Leviticus, well, then you have to follow every part of that chapter of the bible and you have to stone gay men to death you have to stone yeah. children who are gluttons or drunks to death you have to stone people who work on saturday to death and you have mm-hmm. to stone adulterers to death if you really believe that one part of the bible that says you shall not lie with a man as with a the woman then technically you have to stone donald trump to death two times because divorce right, and remarriage right. counts as adultery under old testament law which you should not do my whole thing is i'm all for A government based on christian values i i really am i mean we can take care of the poor take care of the sick don't start Mm. fights be kind to those in prison sign me what we call the fuck up this is my lonely island of just screaming about the fact that it's not even christian but the point is you're right bob even if it was even if their holy book backed up this insane cruelty that's not how this country works it's bad economics and it's bad civics
4: as a theologian, you know that there are a lot of weird things in the Bible, a lot of strange stories, a lot of odd
2: behavior. Uh, not as odd as you a... calling me a theologian. I'm just a guy who's read the book and is pissed off at jerks. But go on. please. Well,
4: you have like if not theologian, you're a theologian adjacent is what you are.
2: And that's thank you. I do theologian cosplay is what I do. Thing. Yeah. 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 We have these uh, parties where I dress up as Bishop Spong. It's, it's really, it's, <laughs> you know, don't kink shame me. Go on.
4: But we know there's lots of death and awfulness and weirdness in the Bible. This is just something that's in there. And, and oh, so don't forget the incest. Yeah, easy. there's all kinds of fun. Yeah. And I, I don't necessarily want to make a slippery slope argument with this. I'm just curious as to where you draw the line in this. What can you use in the Bible to justify whatever you could use? You could find a passage in the Bible that says, you know what? I don't want to pay taxes anymore. Probably find something to justify that. You take it to Judge Reed O'Connor and he's going to say, OK, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Your religious liberty says you don't have to pay taxes. OK, fine. You don't have to pay taxes or yeah. whatever it might be, whatever. I can other, see that, by the way, I can see exactly
2: I can see exactly that happening. Uh, exactly yeah. that, except that in the book of Matthew. Uh, Jesus says, you have to pay your taxes. Render unto Caesar Mm -hmm. that which is Caesar's, render unto God that which is God's. So even there, it's just like, you know, I I would come out and say the death penalty. Jesus overturns eye for an eye in the Sermon on the Mount. You Mm -hmm. cannot support executing other people. If there was no death penalty, Jesus might still be around. I mean, I can do it all day, but it it doesn't matter. I'm hung up on, on, and I sound pedantic about it. I'm hung up on how fake the spirituality of the argument is. Mm -hmm. The reality is, this whole system is bullshit because employers shouldn't be responsible for giving health care as part of a compensation package. To me, Bob, the whole story is this is why we need single payer. Stop Mm -hmm. letting fake Christians decide who lives and who dies.
4: Right. Right. And we've seen decisions like this before, not only from Reed O'Connor, but we also saw a decision like this, which was, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most ignorant decisions ever handed down by the Supreme Court. And that was the Hobby Lobby decision. Oh yeah, where you know they brought in all kinds of experts to say, okay, well, this is uh, this is when uh, this is how morning after medications work. This is how Plan B works. This is how the medications outlined in the Affordable Care Act, which passed Hyde Amendment muster in the process of passing that legislation, correct? No Hyde Amendment issues in any of the birth control that's covered in the Affordable Care Act gets to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, well, basically. if you think that the morning after pill induces an abortion, then therefore it induces an abortion. It was the most absurd ruling I had ever seen from the Supreme Court. That's insane. Up until the Dobbs decision. And, and by that Dobbs standard, decision then was like, OK, because my beer. I'm going to because 50 this.
2: over 50 percent of fertilized eggs naturally yeah. wash out of women's bodies. That ruling would then make God the most prolific abortionist of all time.
4: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you can't get too specific with these things, John, because you know then you have to start saying, well, the new covenant erased Leviticus. So if you believe in Christ and that's your thing, then you have to acknowledge the
2: fact that I Leviticus know, is you're irrelevant. Right. And, that, and, that, and they can never do it covenant. because they, we, yeah. you're right, you're yeah. right. They on on hate and Jesus. And on they on and hate and the can, Jesus parts. Yeah, they just want to go straight from they want to go straight from like like Leviticus to the golden calf. Skip over to St. Paul, Book of yeah. Revelation, and then a Left Behind books. And that's their Bible. Mm-hmm. It has the duct tape to a Left Behind book in the end. <laughs> exactly uh, Bob, how do our listeners <laughs> yeah. follow you and keep up with your work, sir?
4: Uh, show.com is my Patreon page. You can support my podcast over there. So thank you.
2: It's great to have you back, Bob. Thank you so much. We thank missed you, you on vacation. Hell, see you next week. Quick break. We'll be right back with your calls. Rich in Denver. Thanks for your patience. Welcome,
3: welcome, welcome back, John. Missed you, man. Thanks. But, uh, so good to be back. Yeah, I hope you had a wonderful vacation, as the previous caller said. Uh,
2: I did. Joe I watched Sud- a lot of I watched a lot of TV and took a child to the beach every day. It was a lot of fun.
3: Well, that's extremely important, man. Absolutely. Uh, Joe Sudbay was a yeoman in, in your absence. Uh, He's great. He's John, so, I was, was
2: listening. I was listening to Joe um, on Michelangelo's show earlier today. He was doing a great job over there.
3: Yeah. I, I, I I was as well. John, have you by any chance seen the article written by uh, The Lever along with ProPublica August 22nd? And I can send it to you. It's about Leonard Leo's
0: Mm. basically
3: acquiring uh, Barry Side, I believe, is the CEO who just passed away and transferred all of his wealth. He's estimated at $90 billion, some dollars. He was the uh, manufacturer, former manufacturing head of yeah. uh, a company called Trip, I believe, and they make, they're out of Chicago. They make power strips and uh, a lot of other computer things. Long story short, basically, Leo is just given, has just amassed a $1.6 billion war chest. Yep. Uh, have you seen the article? And, and
2: I have. He, and, and people need to remember that Leonard Leo, this is the, the guy with the honest elections project, and he's the Federalist right. Society hack who who he's the guy who pretty much handpicked Alito uh, and, and, and Roberts and all three of Trump's North Supreme City. Court nominees. Right. right. Yeah.
3: yeah. Right. And, and also to the present conversation, Luce Cannon in Florida. And also she is a Leonard Leo special and also is the other woman in Florida who, uh, as I was telling Nia, ruled on the mask mandate several months back for Florida and basically said nationwide the mask mandate can be dropped.
2: Yeah, so yeah, are- and by the way, that's that, and, and that's all because of Leonard Leo, because she yeah, was unqualified and- to be a judge. The American Bar Association protested Trump making her a judge, but Leonard Leo says, here's your pick, and Trump says, I pick her, and that's how it works. This guy is what dark money is all about. Yeah, and, and, and by I, the way, our friend I, Ellie Mistal, Ellie Mistal has a great piece in The Nation uh, about Leonard yeah. Leo. I just retweeted it when you called that everyone needs to read because he should be a lot more famous considering how much evil influence he has. He's not a good guy.
3: Yeah, he, absolutely. He is. He is a member. And, and this guy, very Side, the, you know, the the article was mentioning, you know, the, the only photo they could dig up on this guy was when he was a 14 year old. at an internship program at the University of Chicago where all of this bullshit, you know, the Leonard Friedman school of economic trickle-down BS and stuff and and all this this came from, you know. But, John, it's absolutely frightening. And I know you and I have talked about this before, about how pertinent it is to get the money out of politics, you know, to set up a hatch amendment and make all uh, elections because this guy, basically, one of the things the article also said is, it's all basically tax-free, and he has no taxes on it, basically, no, yeah. uh, and he can just flood it into, and it's That's not just it. the SCOTUS. It, it's not just the SCOTUS and the federal judges. You know, it, the the strategy and the plot is to yeah. continue to push it across the country and put it exactly into state judges and, and federal you know, Supreme Court, state Supreme well, that's Court. That's what they
2: just did this week, right? I mean, this guy was just given $1. And, one and a half billion dollars by the Chicago billionaire. And where does that money go? It goes to filing Supreme Court briefs, arguing that yeah. state legislatures don't have to acknowledge state constitutions protecting voting rights if they don't feel like yeah. it. I mean, it's all right. about getting this pesky democracy out of the way of Absolutely. their lucrative fascism. And that's what Leonard Leo's career is all about. Google the man.
3: And and, he, and he's a young guy, too. He's not, you know, I mean, he's 56. But, you know, I know President Biden is against putting more judges on the court. But I don't see, and I was telling Thea, I hope you're wrong about Donnie Bin Laden going to prison. But, you know, I agree with you. I don't think he's going to. But, you know, if he's allowed to skate, it basically opens the door for, as you've said before, smarter candidates like Ron Death Sentence from Florida. And yeah. with the help of Leo, that, that'll be the end. Unless we get control of the Senate, you know, and make it an ironclad that all money goes out of politics and it, be, that's and it. it becomes publicly financed. That's it. That's you know?
2: it. And I'm telling you, the day we can convince right-wingers that publicly funded elections is better for them than privately funded, I don't know if we can ever do it because fascism is all about corporate control of politics. That's what Mussolini said. And that's essentially what it all is. It's just about might makes right. But, man, we, we cannot have private money in our politics it's just it's it's killing us and it's been revealed to be killing us and it does everything it can do to kill the will of the people i i think that we should have completely publicly funded elections and candidates should have debates on pbs every single week there should just be tons and tons of elections and all the money that's spent for uh, ads how could a poor man ever run for president i mean we're just so used to the candidate with the most money winning let's start to try to change that and make it more about the issues than about who can flood the zone
3: Exactly, and and as much as it is that, John, yeah. it's about our home, because we've had four days straight out here of ten, three days that have broken records in the high nineties. We last month out here in Denver, we had the high temperature broke a hundred and forty-five year old record, John. Mm-hmm. The, the record was ninety-nine, and it passed it by two degrees. It was one hundred and one in August. Oh, yeah. Day.
2: I just I mean, got back it, from Southern California. It was, it was my birthday planet. and we we couldn't go outside to the, the I mean, beach on my birthday cuz it was a heat advisory. It's like don't don't go out in the yeah. air. The air is dangerous.
3: There was a there was rolling blackout in in, in California yesterday, you know? I mean, yeah. it's as much about the planet and we are literally, you know, is this is burning, you know? Uh, so I mean
2: <laughs> Nero's burning. <laughs> I like that.
3: You know, it's just, you know, John, thank you for the time. Have a beautiful night, my friend. I love your show. Love your guest. Thank guests. you, Rich. Love Thea. Love Chris. And I will talk to you soon again, my I friend. I love
2: Thea, too. And Chris Chris is punctual, so that, that, that counts for something. Thank you.
3: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.